Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Good morning. When you're listening to this, I don't know if it will be morning, but for me, it's morning. It's 7.39 on Thursday, July 25th. We're posting this episode in a couple days. I just want to say, hey, man, if you're tuning in, thank you for listening. We just ran this episode with Jason from the Old Dirty Boston podcast. And for those who don't know, Old Dirty Boston is a term for Boston from like the 1970s to the 1990s. And so Jason interviews a handful of people on his show about the time period. And he's kind of just trying to piece together the cultural framework of like, yep, this is what was going on during the time. This is why it was happening. So it's all that like Whitey Bulger stuff. You imagine a bunch of that other stuff. And so we tried to just hit on the most basic points about what was going on during the time. And I was pumped that we could bring together another podcast in the city. With that being said, man, it's Big Bochi. Give me a DM if you're listening. I'd love to know what you guys think. Sometimes it's tough for me to gauge who's consuming the content. Hey, all love. Hi, I'm Jason Faulkner from the Old Dirty Boston Podcast. And this is my golden hour. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four dear nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the fire deer attacked. Only Derek, master of all four elements, could stop those boys. But when Boston needed him most, he vanished into the enchanted golden deer forest. Season four. And so, the double clap. Whoa, sound a little clipped out there. The double clap signifies the start of an episode. And so, as I've been telling everybody, I'm going to change into a completely different person than before we started rolling. Okay. With that being said... I have a a street historian with us today. And so since the mass cast, I've been getting reached out to by a bunch of people connected to podcasts in the city, which has been really nice because I didn't I wouldn't necessarily have known except a couple of my friends were following your page. And I think there are a lot of really dope podcasts out here, but there's no cohesion. I agree. And I think that that. I don't know if it was your plan going in, but it worked perfectly. Thank you. The fact that, um, you know, when you get people together in a group, it's like a school of fish that swim together. All of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, that's the big fish in the block. So that's why I'm here. Uh, I saw that you were putting people together. I promise. I'm a good guy. Usually they tell you, guys that tell you they're a good guy, you got to be careful with those ones. (laughs) Every chick I know that goes on dating apps is like, if he tells you he's a good guy, run. Well, what app are they on? Uh, Usually, all right, what are the ones they use? Tinder. They don't want to admit to Tinder, but they're on Tinder. Oh, everyone. Bumble. Bumble's Tinder? where it's at. I met the most fantastic, amazing woman in the world on Bumble, but. Um, and you're still dating her? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Over a year in. Yes. It's really Very much in love and huh? happy. Oh, it works. And then some of the weirder ones would go on like Plenty of Fish. Uh, Hinge is a big one these days. What was your first. How did you initiate the conversation on Bumble? Or is it the female initiates? Oh, on Bumble, yeah, she has to say what's up. 
And, and then so, you just dive right in. I usually, one, one date actually said to me, I thought you would either be incredibly intelligent or mildly autistic. Because I basically just say whatever the fuck I want. And that works sometimes. You got to break the norm, you know? You get that. So is your current partner familiar that you were having Bumble dates before? Oh, yeah, totally. We're adults. We're like, you know. Well, I'm not. So. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? You don't use dating apps? I don't, actually, to be honest with you. Why not? I, I try to stay off my phone as much as possible because... That's I'm, a good call, actually. Yeah. I like talking with people. I agree with you on that. I feel like you do, too. I really do, yeah. Do you want to just kind of give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Yeah. Uh, my name is Jason Faulkner, and I have a podcast called Old Dirty Boston Podcast. Um yeah. There's a lot of historical stuff in Boston, and you could spend your whole life working on it and never get to the bottom of it. But the niche that I'm really interested in is sort of like the street-level view of the city in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, even in the 90s. And so I grew up here in Somerville. I have a lot of kind of personal connection to friends and family and things like the Winter Hill Gang that I really want to talk about today. But um, I've done interviews on desegregation and busing in Boston public schools. And I, I don't like the fact that um, I feel like you either have to t pick two sides a lot of the time where it's like you're going really academic and it's really formal and it's really about the facts or it's just like nonsense. Uh, you mean for topic-based podcasts? I think for topic-based podcasts, but more so just in general news to consume and content. And um, for me, I wanted to like integrate, how do you give like a high level thought process to this, but still really hear the voices of the people on the street? How do they speak? How do they mm, internalize this information? Do they understand like what these events are and how they affected them long-term? Um, and so, you know, things like drugs, sex, relationships, violence, uh, those are the topics I really focus on because those are the things that I think affect people the deepest and probably have the biggest like social effect overall. Well, I think I, that was something I picked up on is close that out. you definitely like talking about drugs. I like to talk about drugs because do you like drugs yourself? Um, I'm no, I'm not like a drug guy. So I drink. Um, once like in a blue moon I might like take an edible or something but I don't I've never tried like cocaine I've never tried hard drugs neither have I yeah and I, I don't recommend that anybody does and these interviews actually are really good examples of why you shouldn't like the drugs aren't leading you <laughs> to a good place guys it's not well I'm sure you're interviewing people who have who seem tired yeah most of the time right yeah some people just seem like their life has been total total drudgery yeah these people lived some of them lived really fast and really hard and uh they crashed at some point and they usually crashed in a relation to like the drugs got them out of out of control are they in so for reference jason interviews an eclectic mix of people who were present in kind of doing for lack of a better term dirty things during this era in boston do they, a lot of them seem self-reflective after like living so hard and so fast or does it seem like they're more fried out? Um, does that make sense? There's a great, uh, there's a great little snip at the end of the, the Winter Hill Gang 
interview with Bobby Martini, who was also a Somerville guy, and you might even want to have him in sometime. So he grew up, his dad owned Marshall Motors, which was the hangout for... Uh, he wrote a book on Winter it, right? Hill Gang. He wrote a book called Citizen Somerville. You could find it on Amazon. Uh, I absolutely love that book. If you live in Boston, you, you really should just do yourself a favor and read it and get some history on it. Um, he says at the end, he's like, you know, the average guy should just just work. You know, just do what you have to do in your life. He's like, that stuff is never going to get you anywhere. It's not the right move. It's not the right thing to do. He said it much more eloquently. I can't pull the quote out of my my ass right now, but <laughs> sounds pretty mundane, though. I think there's something very, I think there's something totally integral to a human that people just sometimes want to push the limit a little bit. Would you concur? Absolutely. I mean, there are people that just naturally have to push, and I'm definitely one of those people. I mean, I could see it just from meeting you. Like you have that edge in you, where you're going to take the road that's a little bit. You know, like sometimes I'll jog through the projects or sometimes I'll, <laughs> I, sicko. I, I dropped out of school and moved to China. I mean, you did. Yeah. I always just veer on the edge of like a little bit extreme because I can never get back to that point in my life. And the worst thing I want to do is be on that deathbed at the end and say like, oh, you know, I wish I took more chances or, oh, I wish I, you're not going to say, I wish I played it safer. Can I tell you something that really freaked me out recently? The face app. You know how there's this huge trend going on with the Face app? Mm-hmm. And actually, it's a Russian-based app, so they're encouraging all candidates to delete the app because they think there might be some hacking. But I actually saw what I think my face would look like when I was 80, and it petrified the shit out of me. I was like, yeah, bro, I really need to maximize my day completely. Have you used it yet? No. See, I don't use like Snapchat, any of that stuff, so I'm pretty... Um I'm on my phone way too much, but it's just like emails and texts. And, Twitter. And Instagram. I don't even do Twitter. Oh, I feel like you'd love it. Yeah, I should. I just never got into it for some reason. I don't know what it is. Where do you acquire all your information? Um, if I'm like researching for one of these, usually I'll go to a source that has some context and they'll give me like three or four books to go like dig into. So you start with somebody. You read, you read books? Oh yeah, I read the books. You're a rare breed, bro. They're still out there. And do, you that, read, do you read? Oh, I'm sorry. That was actually wildly rude of me. Abu is in the building. You want to come up, swing up? What's give, up, Abu? Give him the music plug, man. This L- tall, handsome Mongolian I, man. Abu, you on Tinder out there? Mm, wait, wait, Abu. You mic. were. Are you taken now? What up? What up? Huh? Are you taken now? No, I was for a little bit. Ah, but you're off Tinder. Yeah. I, I never liked like advertising myself. This felt weird. Do you still have the app? Okay. It's like on I think the the growth of Tinder is wildly interesting because it was first deemed like, yo, you're a total slut if you use it. And now it's like, hey, let me go meet the man or slash woman of my dreams on that thing. I kind of feel like with Tinder, there's still not the expectation of man or woman of your dreams. I but, could be but wrong you about that. Bumble and you're like. I'm going to meet the girl in my dreams on this thing, man. Well, that was the thing. It was like Tinder was to get laid and Bumble was to like actually meet a real relationship. Yeah, right. I'm sure, bro. I'm sure Absolutely. that was your intentions when you started. That was the intention. I was 100%. All the classic girls go to Bumble. It's true. You switch. You go from Tinder to Bumble. Immediate difference. Instant difference. I wouldn't know. The quality of women on Bumble is way beyond. So I would recommend maybe check out the Bumble. Or maybe we just go to the combat zone. Right. Find the women of our dreams down there. 
so we're doing those tours now. Uh, you can go hey, on a g- tour. Yeah, give me your promo. You can go on a tour. It's olddirtybostontour.com. Uh, and we'll actually walk you around the old combat zone. And we use viewfinders. You can stand on the corner and you can actually like see what the streets used to look like. Whoa. Like in the 60s and the 50s. And while we're starting the tour, swear to God, a hooker walks up to a guy middle of the day and just starts grinding on him. And like, you know, making a play for him. And she looked like a like a disgusting hooker. She was she was a midday hooker. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Hashtag living on the edge. Right. So they're still out there. It's still grimy as fuck in the combat zone. Can or, you can you elaborate on what the combat zone is for the uneducated? The combat zone was Boston's red light district, and it was actually zoned by the city um, because back then you didn't have the internet, you didn't really have access to like watch pornography. And they realized that pornography was becoming a thing, and it was sort of going to spread out across the city. And they said, "Okay, we know we can't stop this, but what, let's what just years? isolate it." I think it started in the fifties. Um, Old Scully Square, which is now Government Center, used to sort of be where most of the bars and like burlesque joints were. And the city just basically flattened the West End. Um, and once they did that, that whole neighborhood of Vice was was wiped away, and they reinserted it into the combat zone which is on the edge of chinatown now it's washington street and neeland there were all these like old theaters the pilgrim the naked eye um and if you talk to anybody over the age of 40 in boston they they should know what the combat zone was was it did the government gift it the name of the combat zone or that was just kind of like a culture thing uh i don't know if it was ever like an official government term but it was because so many of the people that would go there were soldiers. So, like, guys would come in on ships for oh, military right. leave, things like that. And so there would be, like, Marines and sailors and Army guys. That's where, like, the military guys would go first to sort of get some, their jollies. Pilots. Oh, yeah. Everybody. Um, so that's where the Combat Zone name came from. And if you go online, you can do some Google searches, look at, like, uh, Combat Zone images there were only a handful of photographers that were in there doing street photography, but the ones that did captured unbelievable images. I mean, it just sets the tone instantly as soon as you see it. They're beautiful. They're in black and white. Um, a guy named Jerry Burnt, B-E-R-N-D-T. Uh, check out his stuff, and you'll definitely be impressed with it. What initially drew you to being fascinated by this stuff? So, Because I think a lot of people in the city... One, there's this connotation in Boston right now that Boston's historically like this racist, really like grungy city where you had this group of Irish people who were inherently racist to black people. And there was this racial unrest that still hasn't totally been resolved. And then there was this huge mob influence, both Irish and Italian. And so I think a lot of people like it, but their knowledge of it is probably based around the departed and black mass and the, the town. Yeah, um, I think that it wasn't a myth. I think that this city was very racist. um, And there was kind of a root of that. And it's not completely wiped out. Um, I was at a wedding a couple weeks ago, and a guy said the N-word to me um, in in conversation, thinking that it was okay. Uh, Yeah, it was just, you know, they don't... He doesn't recognize what's wrong with that. White, it was a white dude? Yeah, it was an old white guy. That, there's nothing more It was a white com- guy like in the 60s. when someone says that. And it was like, I was shocked. I was blown away. And, um, but that's why it is still there. And so to me, the biggest 
thing that I could accomplish with these interviews is like flushing that shit out. Because people want to pretend like it used to be racist. Oh, yeah, those were problems, but they weren't really based in racism. It was more about the neighborhoods. Guess what, guys? Like, a lot of it was racism, and a lot of it's still here. And I think for, you know, I'm a, we're two white guys talking about this, but if you're an African-American person living in Boston, it's almost like you've been gaslit a little bit. Because it's like, oh, no, we're not racist. Everything's cool. You have totally cool opportunity. But the reality is they didn't. You know, they were actually even physically like segregated. The neighborhoods that people have been placed in, like Roxbury, Mattapan, Dorchester, people know those as black neighborhoods. You know, Somerville, Charlestown, people know those as white neighborhoods. So that is changing. And I think my generation, especially your generation, a lot of it is washed away where we're not really seeing color. And it's okay. Um, but I think that, you know, people need to realize like they were at a major disadvantage and that wasn't a complaining thing. That was like a, a real legitimate problem. So has, have socioeconomic issues just always like kind of like lit a fire inside you? Is that like why you do this or, or do, are you just kind of fascinated by like all the crazy shit that used to go on in the city? Um, I was living in New York for a little while. And <laughs> it was for work. It was a couple of years. It was Bummer. no biggie. Um, and when I came back, I realized like how much I miss sort of the tradition of just sitting around with my buddies and telling stories and drinking beers and that it is different. Like uh, people in Boston have a tradition of storytelling and telling jokes and sort of like ribbing each other that you don't find everywhere. And I was like, you know what? This is special. Like this kid, you know, Brian might not think that anybody gives a shit about the time he, um, you know, got in a fight with his neighbor or whatever it was. But actually, these are great entertaining stories and nobody's sharing them. And I saw it as coming from the side of like dirty old Boston. They still have the accent. They still have that I don't give a fuck attitude. They still have Hashtag that roughness. County exactly. would be a, an appropriate term that people are probably familiar with, right? Yeah. And so, but now it's almost like townie has a negative connotation. But I'm trying to say like, hey, this personality is a you can love it and hate it, but it's an amazing personality. It's like you're not going to find that anywhere else, and it's washing away. I, I agree because my my father is Cambridge, has grown up in Cambridge. All of his friends, like the VFW gang, you know what I'm saying? So you've seen that. Yeah, I grew up around it. And so I think there's something about the niche of people you're talking about where a lot of them are like, blatantly expressive in a much different way than you'd yes imagine. You know and saying? they will test you they will they will chirp on you and they'll push you and, and they'll insult and it's you totally socially acceptable to be wicked abrasive yeah it's and like it's that's your starting hilarious. line it's awesome i mean you walk in that room and basically you're going to get hit with a few shots and people are going to see how you react to that and some people are so sensitive and they take that so hard but if you grew up around that and you know that you know you could tell them to go fuck themselves and it's okay like the ability to maneuver in that environment, in that room is a special skill set. And if yeah, you have it, it you're tough. I know. I sometimes, I sometimes pity my sister's boyfriend who's like, just like kind of getting yeah. ingratiated into everything. <laughs> it's like, yeah, man, you kind of got to cut out for you. Like, for instance, I was at the VFW probably like a month or two ago and I was telling him, I was like, yeah, man, I'm like running this podcast and like throwing parties. And so some guy came up to me. It's like, dude, who's been at the VFW a bunch. He was like, he was like, so what's a podcast? He's like, you still making movies? I'm like, all right, man. 
But it's just like shit like that. And a lot of them aren't necessarily in tune to the digital age either. Right. I'm sure a lot of people you've interviewed, you've realized that, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so the one thing I really wanted to... I think it's fitting because we're right around the corner from it. But um, let's talk about a little history of the Winter Hill Gang. Yeah, yeah. We can definitely segue. I'm just going to give you my knowledge first. That's actually a perfect way to do this, yeah. Because it's probably very rudimentary. Well, Abu, are you familiar with the Winter Hill Gang? So I think most people when they hear Winter Hill Gang, one, they could drive like three minutes from here because Winter Hill is like three minutes from here. And the yep. Winter Hill Savings Bank is still there. Yes, it and is. It's like a been robbed bank. many times. I'm sure. I Actually, yeah, I heard it in your podcast. But I w- my knowledge is that Whitey Bulger, who's you're familiar with, the massive Irish mobster, ran the Irish mob, was doing all these deals with the FBI, ran the Winter Hill Gang. What was always interesting to me is learning that Winter Hill was in Somerville, but the Irish mob was so connected to Southie. So that was always weird. I also knew during the Winter Hill gang time, there was also some friction between the Irish groups and the Italian groups in the city. The North End and South Boston. I don't really know where Somerville ties into this. And one more thing, I do know that Providence also had a very prevalent Italian mob. And so that's pretty much all I got. Yes. I think you actually have a really good lay of the land there. So you definitely have more knowledge than I would say uh, the average person, especially understanding that it goes back to Providence, which um, I haven't dug into the North End yet. That's like step. That's the next step for me. That's a gold mine, man. I know. But the Angelo family was essentially who was running um, the Italian mafia in Boston. And it sounds like the leader of all of that was based in Providence. Um, but for the Somerville Winter Hill Gang, the first thing that's really important to get out of the way, Whitey Bulger, uh, really according to Bobby Martini. James. James Whitey Bulger. And, and Bobby Martini and all those Somerville guys, he was not Winter Hill. He really wasn't. The reason that he's associated with it was because, one, he was the most prominent Irish gangster in Boston, period. And Winter Hill was the biggest, baddest, strongest Irish mob in the city. So he he actually worked to affiliate himself as the leader of Winter Hill because it was like being king of the hill, holding the crown. Whoever ran Winter Hill essentially was the highest of the high in the Boston mafia. I mean, the Boston Irish mob. Um he was working with the FBI, and he got 21 people indicted and sent to prison. Snitch. One of the people he got sent to prison was Howie Winter. Howie Winter was the real king of the hill. He really ran Winter Hill. And when Whitey got all those guys sent to jail, that was his opportunity to try and consolidate Boston power. He really was there as a placeholder um, in Winter Hill. And, and as soon as Howie was out of prison, he was kind of kicked out and um, back to South Boston. Were, were the collective of people familiar that he was actually the one that initiated these 21 people going to prison? At the time, no. No one knew. They didn't know until years later. That dude's a finesser. How do you pull that off? Yeah, I mean, credit where it's due. Like, the guy did make some moves, for sure. Uh, but I always wondered that because the reputation of Whitey, all you would ever hear is he was a, a cutthroat, he was a snake, he was a rat, he was all negative things. But people in Somerville, when they heard about Somerville... I mean, when they talked about the Winter Hill Gang, uh, my uncles, my family, people that spoke of it never had negative things to say. They almost had a positive, like, yeah, they really kept the neighborhood in check. And that's what I asked him. I said, I don't get this. How do you put those two together? And Bobby said clearly, 
Whitey was not Winterhill. And that's why the difference is there. The Winterhill guys actually veered on the side of keeping some order in the neighborhood. They primarily ran gambling rackets. That was like their big money. Like they were just bookies? They were All the bookies in and around Somerville basically had to pay pay into uh, Winter Hill. And so I'm wondering how much the old Suffolk Downs tied into a lot of their money too. And for reference, Suffolk Downs was a racehorse track in a dog track, correct? Right near Revere Beach, yes. yes. And it's um, now defunct. So actually the indictments had a lot to do with fixing horse races. Yeah, they used to, you know, uh, juice the horses and do things like that. So, And so there was a big connection with the, the Irish mob there. That was all related to the Irish mob. Yeah, absolutely. Those those would be wild to go to still. I know. I've never actually been to a live horse race. I know, but a lot of people have their like bank accounts busted. Oh, really? Is oh, horse racing a big thing? Have you oh, been to oh, New- Obviously it is, but I mean like with uh, people you know? Oh, yeah. Really? It's a rush. Yeah. Okay. Is, do you bet regular sports or you just bet horses? I don't bet either. Okay. But I'm a psycho. <laughs> Anyone wants to live on the edge, I would bet on some horses. Okay. So I think one fascinating thing is like, what would the day-to-day of someone who is doesn't have a job and it's just affiliated with organized crime be like during this time? I mean, I'm speaking third party. I'm not affiliated with organized crime. But uh, from what I've learned, it's basically like you have money on the street. And that means you've either loaned money as a loan shark and they're paying you money back or you uh, are a bookie and you have bets out there that have to be collected. So most of your time is just spent running around chasing after your money. You know, you loan a guy, uh, let's say a thousand dollars. I think he needs to pay you like 5% a week on that. And typically what happens is those people aren't paying you back any principal. You're just collecting your VIG. So you'd be collecting your 5% on your thousand dollars every week. But they're not always going to pay. If they needed to borrow money in the first place, they're probably a little stretched. Where do where does drug dealing play into it? So drugs had to have been a big piece of this. But no one has really copped to the fact, or no one has actually told me, they've all denied that like Winter Hill was connected to the drug dealing. I, I don't like know if I totally buy that. You're trying to dissect in your podcast, though, right? I'm trying to get to the root of like where did the drugs come from? Who was making the most money off of them? The street level dealers? Was there like people that were higher up? That's stuff that people are a lot tighter about. They don't want to talk about. And from what you've acquired, where did most mobsters launder their money? So I'm sure they're they're getting interest from local businesses. They're running books from people in the community just betting on sports games and stuff like that but i think a lot of people when they think of organized crime they'll think of the sopranos and like how tony soprano was laundering all his money through his like waste management company yeah were there what what were like the institutes that a lot of them were using at the time they had businesses uh so they ran bars a lot of them or clubs or they ran like little garages so marshall motors was a place um it was on marshall street in somerville and it was a garage and they basically you know you could write a lot of stuff on your books there. They had Pal Joey's, which is the shirt that I'm wearing now, actually. Uh, that was a nightclub. I don't know if you know where the uh, post office is on Broadway. It was in the basement of that. It was a big nightclub. They had like a stage. Uh, they would all hang out there. So those kind of places, you know, they would run the money through that. And so were police at the time, people aren't stupid. People know when raw shit is happening. 
was there like a, a prevalent intimidation presence at the time? Like saying, hey, police, why don't you just like, don't worry about us, man. We'll take care of this. Or This is where you can see that the, it was a different era. So Bobby tells a story of um, there's a guy named Sal Sperlinga. And Sal was, he ran a lot of the gambling. Um, he ran a lot of the sports teams for the Winter Hill guys. And he was a tough guy. And he had a real reputation of like keeping things in order. He didn't get out of line. Physically. So, physically. They were in uh, Pal Joey's one night. And there was a cop who was like, you know, rookie on the force, young guy. He was in Pal Joey's and he was being loud and obnoxious and just kind of saying some, some rude shit to some of the waitresses. And Sal walked over and slapped him across the face. And that was it. And he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. Uh, another time in the Somerville Projects, um, Sal's daughter was out with some friends. One of the cops were down there. They were looking for something, and they were trying to grab one of the kids. And a cop grabbed Sal's daughter, not knowing it was her, and pulled her down the stairs and knocked her down the stairs. And Sal drove down to the projects, found the cop, and beat him in front of a crowd of about 50 people. With no repercussion? Zero repercussion. Wow. If you said there, – there are things of – if you were stopped or you had a problem and you said, you know, I- I'm with the Hill or I'm, or they knew that you were, the cops wouldn't touch it because they didn't want that heat. They, and they didn't want to deal with the issue. Exactly. And they also knew that it was self-regulated and that's the difference. This is not crime that's out there like um, shooting people up in the streets and all that. This is like they, in a way, they navigated their own environment and they kept it in check. Yeah, I know what you're saying. It, it wasn't like it was anarchy on the streets. Never. And, and it, it was, was calculated. It was the opposite. So uh, an amazing story. One of the episodes, Johnny Baino, uh, he talks about a young girl, like 16, comes into Pal Joey's. And she goes up to Sal and she says, uh, you know, my dad, he's, they were an Italian immigrant family. He says, there's bikers on our street and they keep um, throwing beer cans at my dad. And he asks them to be quiet at night and they, they push him around and they bully him. And Sal says, okay, we'll go check it out. So Sal gets a few guys, they drive up, and they get to the street, and they slow down in front of the bikers and roll down the window. The bikers don't know who Sal is. He says, you know, what the fuck are you looking at, old man? Like, keep going. So Sal says, oh, okay. So they pull over, they get out of the car, and they just beat them into dirt. The bikers, they drag them up and down the street, smash up their bikes. He drags the main biker to the steps of the Italian family's house, and he says, apologize to these people. And if they ever tell me that you bother them again, he said, you won't get to speak anymore. And leaves. The next morning, they show up at Pal Joey's and the Italian family standing there with like grocery bags of pastas, meatballs, food, uh, pastries to say thank you to them. So these guys, yeah, were they gangsters? Yes. But there was another side where they were also, they were just tough, rough guys. And they weren't going to become accountants. They weren't going to become doctors. They were ambitious. They wanted to have control. They wanted to make money. And um, they found that they could do that through gambling rackets. I also think what's interesting is that a lot of the power they acquired was through like physical force and physical intim- intimidation. Because now like you never see that. No, you Pe- can't hit people anymore. <laughs> I know, but it's like a bad thing to be scared of someone physically now. You know what I'm saying? Like, for instance, there are, how do I say this the right way? There's like people, 
I feel like I've been in situations personally where people will take my word for things more because I'm a bigger guy, right? I feel like back then the way you acquired power was purely through physical intimidation. Would you concur? It's really... Was there any cunning involved or intellect? It's so insightful that you say that because I've been trying to wrap my head around like what was the biggest difference, right, of like then and today. And back then, really, people's reps, every guy that I brought in, every old Somerville guy, it would have something to do with he was the toughest guy or I was – it was about toughness. It's like that's how you got your reputation. I feel like now it's really about like – in a lot of sense, it's about money. It's like, oh, well, I have a company that makes this or I I own this. That's sort of how you show people like you're a smart, strong person. Back then, it was like you had a reputation that you were tough. And if people challenged you and said you weren't, you would have to fight them. They would be fighting on a regular basis, grown men. It's nearly barbaric. It's incredibly barbaric. I mean, I'm watching Game of Thrones and I'm like, I can see how. Yeah. Because back then. What season are you on? uh, I'm on season four. End of season four. Wait, so what just happened? Uh, Abu, you've seen it, right? Oh, Tyrion Tyrion just killed his dad. Spoiler alert for the listeners. Sorry, guys. That's a fire ass scene, though. Yeah, I mean, I was I couldn't really get into it season one, two. I was like, eh, struggling. Too many, too many characters, right? And then I hit three, and I was in. I'm hooked. It's amazing writing. Yeah, it it's veer, an incredible it show. Off a little bit though, would you? You agree? So, where did uh, sports teams play into this at the time? Because I'm also picturing during this old dirty Boston era. I'm also picturing that Larry Bird era too. You feel me? Yeah. Because because he was like. Big Milky, you feel me? I do. Draining threes. If I could pick one person to embody like the identity of old Dirty Boston, it would probably be Larry Legend. Larry Bird, he's just this white guy with very little like natural talent or athleticism. Baller. He just hustled the fuck out of everything. And like he had a swagger to him. You know, there's that famous thing he walks into the three point contest in the locker room and he's like, All right, so who's second place? Swag. I mean, for a guy that looked like that. To have that swag on him is really impressive. Um, Where was he, the mob tie-in? I don't know. I actually don't know. There must have been. They must have been doing something, right? If they were that powerful. Maybe so. North End guys, yeah, because they were a little closer to that. Um, but I don't know. To tell you the truth, I know that they ran like local sports teams, and they definitely had an influence in um, rigging races and games. And so there must have been some connection there. Where does Okay, so you've given a, a a brief synopsis of what was going on in Somerville. What is going on in South Boston at this time in terms of the Irish mob? And for for a year reference, it's like the 19 late 70s, 80s. Um yeah, this would probably be 70s, 80s. Uh but one really cool story is the Irish mob wars that everybody's probably heard about. The way they started was in the sick early 60s. Uh the guy who played Mo Green in The Godfather. You know that guy? Oh, you know yeah, what I'm talking I about? I'd seen your Instagram posts on this. Yeah. Uh, he was friends with the Winter Hill guys. He grew up in Somerville and Cambridge. Yeah, so the actor was actually affiliated. His name was Alex Rocco. He had a longer name, but he used Alex Rocco. He was affiliated. He was at, they were at a party in Salisbury Beach. And some guy from the McLaughlin gang who was in Charlestown started hitting on his girlfriend. The Winter Hill guys beat up the McLaughlin guy, dropped him in front of a hospital. The McLaughlins go to who at that time was the leader of um, the Winter Hill Gang. 
it wasn't Howie. It was, uh, oh my God, I'm uh, blanking on this. Somebody have their phone? Because this is not something I can screw up. Oh, uh, Buddy McLean. Sorry. So Buddy McLean, who was originally starting, who started Winter Hill, who was like the king of the hill then, they go to him and they say, hey, give us the guys that beat up uh, the McLaughlin brother because that was out of line. He was a made guy, whatever. And Buddy refuses. A couple weeks later, the McLaughlins tried to blow up Buddy's car. They planted a bomb under it in the Mystic Projects here in Somerville. Bomb goes off, explodes, doesn't kill Buddy. Now he knows that it was the McLaughlins that did it. He drives over to Charlestown and shoots one of them coming out of a bar. And that it's on. The Irish gang wars are like in full force. And they raged for up almost 10 years. And that was Charlestown versus Somerville. Does that, for reference, Jason's describing it like it was just like war. But no, there were like people getting killed in the streets. Yeah. In front of other people. Like were dying. Yeah. People were pulling out handguns and shooting each other. And in it, the face, in the was, street. And it was somewhat socially, everyone was petrified, but it was someone at the time socially acceptable. Like, yeah, that's kind of what happens in the city, right? Yeah, and that's why I can't, to imagine that today, if there were a shooting in Somerville, it would be like, oh on a, it God. would just be, but then it must have been a different society. It really must have been that different. Like, that, that could be happening. After this episode, like, we were all to go outside, right? Like, yo, boo, like, yo, see you, like, go to work, like, yeah, go do your thing, whatever. Yeah, and the and rival we, podcast shoots us down. <laughs> exactly. We just get That's mo- what this was like. And we just get mowed down. Yeah. Um, be- so those guys really went, they literally said, went on the mattresses. They, they couldn't sleep at their own houses because coming out of their houses, they would know where they were. And one of the things that, uh, and this is where the intellect comes in. Howie instituted something called clocking, where there would be guys that could be kind of seen as on the fence. They didn't know if they were going Charlestown, Somerville, because it wasn't just a geographic line. It was like what group they were part of. Yeah. And they would go up to them and say, they would say, hey, here's your schedule. Here's your, your wife's schedule and your kids, what time they go to school. We know everything about you. And we think you're on our side. But if you decide not to be, we know where to find you and when to find you there. And like that was enough to sort of start to like tail people off. Like, oh, I don't wanna I don't want this smoke. I don't wanna get involved with this. It it also seems like I mean, you say that these guys were ambitious, but they don't necessarily seem totally aspirational. It's like they had they had ceilings full of money, they had nice cars, they had hot women. Um they were gangsters, man. Like that that was even today, rap music, it's all about that. Same shit. Money, power, respect. Yeah, I concur, but at the same time, it's like being stuck in the same city for your entire life. Like, you don't ever think some of these guys were like, you know what, cool, like, I'm a hustler, I'm getting it done out here, but eventually, like, I'd like to move and do something a little bit bigger. Um, I think when you run that city and you're the king of that hill, those guys probably lived in a, a headspace of a lot of fear and anxiety, um, they probably wouldn't admit that, but that's really what it is. Like if you're worried that somebody could shoot at you or kill you, you want the security of where you are. You know, your surroundings, you know, the people around you, they may not have felt comfortable to just like, you know, fly over to another country and, and hang there or experience new things. And I don't think that's everybody, but I think a lot of those guys were hyper localized. They could only feel comfortable with who they knew, how they spoke, how they, and they probably had no model about anybody doing something differently. Exactly. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's a that's a big part of it. Um 
so yeah, I mean, that gives a really good context of, of Winter Hill. And again, I hope that people would check out the book, uh, Citizen Somerville. It's a big one. Can I tell you something? I would definitely like give in my mind stay right now. If I was growing up in that time and it's like, okay, you know, you're not a, a, an amazing student. You don't really have the internet. You can't really go start something up for yourself. You could either go work at your uncle's body shop or you could go run the streets, man. And there's no big cap on it. I would a hundred percent choose the streets. Yeah. Absolutely. So I kind of can understand why it was also like an opportunity for a lot of these like younger dudes to go like prove themselves and do something. Yeah, I don't think they had the options that people have today. By no standard did they have those options. It was like you either became like a union worker or, you know, you, you made your money in some other ways. Okay, so a little segue. Can you elaborate? So James Bulger, Whitey Bulger, this is the guy who's like in the underground prison in Utah. Playing well, he's te- playing dead te- now. Oh, he was executed. Yeah, they killed him in prison. Oh, right. Now I'm brain dead. Oh, you didn't hear about this? No, I definitely did hear about this. Yeah, they gouged his eyes out and shit. That was retribution for him snitching on all the uh, all those guys. Oh, you seem like you're pumped about it. I mean, hey, you seem like what you goes get- around comes <laughs> around, you know? I don't think anybody shed too many tears over Whitey. It was an interesting story, though. Oh, yeah. It was... Hey... Again, anybody, like that lives, out of it, man. anybody that lives a life that's beyond the norm, I have total respect for. In good, bad, or otherwise, to live your life to that extreme, there's honor in that, in my opinion. Yeah, when people write movies and write books about you, you've done something. That's more than I can say for me right now. There's no movies about me. It's also just like a terrible... You did some terrible things on this planet. Yeah. You ruined families. But who's to say right and wrong, ultimately? You know? I think it's ingrained. In Abu, you, you coming coming out of Mongolia over there, Genghis Khan, yeah. world conqueror, yeah. raped, pillaged. But you know, there's honor in like the ability to sort of Experience. dominate and uh, and to do that. I think what people disliked the most about Whitey was that he lived outside of the honor of his own world. So he just basically like was a, a weasel and a scammer. He was just always looking for a little way to like get through you know he didn't do it with honor and courage he did it out of just like lying to people and manipulating them i agree though there's definitely something to be said for someone to build something really big yeah additionally he his brother was a prevalent politician at the time can you elaborate on the the, the relationship between them two and kind of how it gave him a little bit of lead way to get some of the things done that he got done. So he still is a prominent politician, and that's been a big criticism for his brother, but he's still in office, so people obviously have to have some love for him. And I haven't spoken to people in Salty. I would be a little curious what's their real take on Whitey. Most people just throw him under the bus as a dirtbag, but I bet you there's some pride there. You know, we had the toughest Irish gangster kind of idea going on. Um... I would assume, I don't have any proof of this, but Connolly, who was the FBI agent that Whitey was working with, that introduction had to have come from somewhere. So Connolly was, is that the Matt Damon depiction in the movie? Yes, that is the Matt Damon p- depiction in The Departed. That connection had to come from somewhere, and it's very likely that his brother kind of like, you know, created some kind of scenario where the FBI could start talking to Whitey, and he knew Whitey's ambitions, and, um, you know, Whitey knew what they needed. And it was like, hey, let's let's work this out together. So it's l- very likely that there was some kind of collusion there. No collusion. No obstruction. <laughs> right. Did you guys watch the rally last night? 
No. What was the... It was a Trump rally. Oh. Are you pro-anti-Trump? I'm non-political. Me too. I just don't know enough. Stay out of the fray. But, but I can tell you one thing. This election is going to be wildly entertaining. I agree with that. It's going to be a great show. I think it's crazy that people write Trump off as being like a fool and an idiot. I mean, this guy, uh, no, no, he ran a hell of a campaign and he, dude is a marketing genius. Yeah. A marketing genius. You, if you had seen the crowd last night in the stream, you would be like, oh my God, people are nuts for this guy. Yeah. So it's interesting times, but it's fun. I mean, I wish it could have been like a Trump Oprah head to head. That would have been the battle of the media brands. Oh yeah. Or then the rock, the rock run is independent. (laughs) I think The Rock could win, don't you? People, he's popular enough. Yeah. At this point, anybody could win. I mean, in reality, like, what was it? Wasn't Kanye supposed to run for 2020? He's still going to run. He's going to win. Okay. Yeah, he's going to come in late. The dark horse coming up the the rear. I'm actually very excited to see his podcast with Joe Rogan. I'd love for that to happen. I would, too. I hope he does it. Did you watch the David Letterman interview? I saw a piece of it, the Netflix stuff. Yeah, I wasn't sure, and I, I turned it on one night, and it was actually, it was a great interview. He talks a lot about, like, mental health, and um, I, I thought it was good. I liked it. Okay, another quick segue. So, when did the the prevalence of the Irish mob and Italian mob dissipate, and why? If you ask me the biggest the, the number one reason probably is that like most of their rackets sort of were either taken by the government or kind of wiped away. So like gambling, people just buy scratch tickets now or they go to the, the lottery store or whatever, you know, and like they can get loans. There's new ways to get loans. Uh, what's this one? Your paycheck, you can get your paycheck early. Do you guys ever get that on your, your phone? Have you ever seen that ad? It's something like, Acorns. oh, I get paid on Friday, but you can you can get your money on Monday and just pay us back. That's fucking loan sharking. That's the original, like, that's exactly what Winter Hill did. And so now some app developer from San Francisco is a genius and a hero, but, you know, those guys were were gangsters. The money just, their businesses were just not making money anymore. Their businesses just dried up. And that may have been uh, a calculated thing on the government side, realizing like, hey, these people are going to do this anyways. So instead of letting that money to go into organized crime, let's divert it back into the government. Gambling. I mean, we have a casino right down the street now. How much of it was hereditary, the gangs in the, the mobs? Like, was it generational, a lot of it? A lot of it was because generational. I'm, I'm assuming a lot of it's like a genetic mindset at a certain point. Like, yeah, okay, I'm kind of a dirty person. Uh, I think it's how you're raised in the sense of like, if you're raised by a tough guy dad, you're probably going to be a tough guy. That's what he wants to mold you as. Um, You know, Bobby talks about his father, and he says, uh, oh, one time, you know, my dad, first time he got out of prison, he showed up at my door with a shotgun in my face. I mean, when you're living like that, you are sort of pushed into, like, growing up that way. And there's an amazing story. There was a guy, Buddy Hackett, and there was a bar on... Mystic Ave called Ten Hills Cafe. Ten Hills Cafe. My dad used to hang there. It was just a rough, it was as rough as it got. It was behind the projects. And it was like, it actually got shut down for being just like a, the back room was like a coke den. Like everybody was doing drugs in there. So there was a crew called the Ten Hills Gang and they were armed robbers. 
They robbed Winter Hill Savings Bank. They robbed Armored Cars. They famously robbed the Hilltop Steakhouse. They shot a guard. They stole $60,000 in cash out of that place. Um, there's a, an amazing book called Shotgunned by a cop, Dana Owen. He was an MDC cop, and uh, they actually shot him in the face. He was pursuing them. He survived, and he spent 10 years trying to track them down. But anyways, um, Hackett was a real tough guy, and he was, he was an outlaw to the 10th degree. So Bobby's dad had a bar called the Pointer Post. It was a VFW post. And they used to hang in there. It was kind of an after hours they'd be drinking. Hackett's in there arguing with Bobby's dad. Bobby, who's a really a, a tough, strong guy, walks over and says, why are you bothering my father? I'm going to get us in Instagram Live one sec. Yeah. And literally knocks out Buddy Hackett. So now Hackett's knocked out. They wake him up. They kick him out. About 30 minutes later. This is pretty oh. elaborate. It's the Jason show. Perfect. All right. How does this hat look with the... You look good. <laughs> I look good. Okay. So they're in the bar. So Bobby has just knocked out Buddy Hackett. Hackett drives back to Ten Hills Cafe, pulls a sawed-off shotgun and a handgun out from back behind the toilets, drives back to the Pointer Post, which was down on Beacon Street. They bust into the Pointer, start shooting at them. The bartender is literally throwing glasses at Hackett while Hackett's trying to shoot him. Bobby's dad gets shot in the side and runs out the back door, escapes. Um, with the, the guy with who, the sawed off. Uh, I don't know if he got hit with the sawed off or with the handgun, but he scurries out the back, gets so, out. Sounds like Modern Warfare too, man. So now, like they finally grab Hackett and the other guy, they wrestle the guns away from them. Hackett and the guy we busted in with just take off and disappear. The cops show up and they find Bobby's dad like a half a block away in like a field, like laying down in the grass, and they ask him, "Who shot you?" And he says, oh, I, I don't know. I was out for a, a, a late run. What a sick. You know, that's the code that these guys lived by. Wow. Yeah. And uh, Hackett actually ended up in United Arab Emirates in jail, in prison, for trying to knock over a jewelry store or something over there. Like, those guys were true outlaws. Whoa. The Ten Hills Gang. Yeah. And the book is called Shotgunned. And... Uh, it's a wild ride. So he's actually my next interview. I'm doing that next week. Dana Owen, the cop who was actually shot. Nice. Yeah. We're just secure that, man. Uh, and one of the cool things is my dad was buddies with these guys. He hung out with them. He knew them. Like when I was reading these books, I could see the names and I knew who the people were. That's a really, a, it's a cool feeling. It's probably why I got so into it. Yeah. I feel like you're tied. You just, there's something in your bloodline. You feel tied to it, you know? Yeah. I feel in it. In it gives me a picture of wh why my dad is the way he is. If he was hanging around people like that, like, fuck, of course he has an identity of, like, toughness and, um, you know? Absolutely. Hey, listen, man. You gotta wrap it up. All right. Did you have a good time? I had an awesome time. I thought this was great. I thought that you guys... Am I, am I actually a good guy? You're a great guy. I, yeah. I told you guys. Let's man. see how you edit this thing. You know? <laughs> I know. Yeah, and then I'll really decide how great yeah, it is. Yeah, let's just chop it up for clickbait. Um, but just so we'll everybody say, we'll knows, say, we'll say podcaster snitches on the entire Irish mob. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hey, give uh, me a plug. Where to find you? Um, the best thing to do, honestly, is follow the Instagram. It's just Old Dirty Boston at Old Dirty Boston because anything I'm working on or doing, I'll just promote it there and post it there. And please check out the podcast, uh, Old Dirty Boston podcast. So many great interviews in there. Uh, I'll, my, give, I'll give you a little plug too. Yeah, you ready? Please. I think what you're doing 
as a topic-based podcast, I think there's a lot of valuable information in the way you're diving into it. It's like, you know what? I don't know if you can find as reliable information about this time period otherwise. So I think that's a great niche. Abu, would you concur? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's... Did you enjoy this one? Let's go. Yeah, and I think it's cool. You can walk down Broadway and like you're in that world again. It's still there. The history of these streets is right in front of you. And Jason's kind of a sicko. Apparently, he's leading tours into the combat zone. Okay, man. Yeah, you could actually <laughs> go on a tour of the old combat zone. Uh, you could see the places. You can hear the stories. Give me some hookers. Yeah, there's actually still wars running around in Chinatown. <laughs> so <laughs> they're out there. Wild. Okay, All right, guys. Right, so wait, so this is how we start and end. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you once. Do not blow it. So you say, hi. Hi. I'm blank, your name. I'm Jason Faulkner. Well, don't do it yet. Oh. And this is my golden hour. Directly after, no break. Hi. I'm blank, your name. And that was my golden hour. And before you do it, I kind of feel like he's going to get a first try. And now the pressure's on. Hi, I'm Jason Faulkner. And that was my golden hour. Blew it. What did I miss? Hi. I'm blank from the Old Dirty Boston podcast. You didn't say that part. (laughs) You got to put put your sauce on it. Okay. Hi. I'm Jason Faulkner, and this is my golden hour. Wait a second. We keep changing Listen, listen. (laughs) Hi, I'm Jason Faulkner from the Old Dirty Boston podcast. I'm a great guy, XYZ. This is my golden hour. Directly after no break. Hi. I'm Jason Faulkner from the Old Dirty Boston podcast, and that was. You got to say two things, because it's at the start. A little post-production, it's at the start, and at okay. the end. Got, got it. Oh. Okay. Screw you, Instagram. Hi, I'm Jason Faulkner from the Old Dirty Boston podcast, and that was my golden hour. Blew it again. Wait, 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 wait. Am I totally not listening to you guys? Abu, down the line, I definitely want to edit up how everyone fucks this up at the end. It's so funny. Okay, hi. I'm Jason Faulkner from the Old Dirty Boston Podcast, and this is my golden hour. And then, hi. I'm Jason Faulkner from the Old Dirty Boston Podcast, and that was my golden hour. Oh, okay. Is and was. Got it. No, but it's this is and that was. Got it. All right. Hi, I'm Jason Faulkner from the Old Dirty Boston Podcast, and this is my golden hour. Nice. Hi, I'm Jason Faulkner from the Old Dirty Boston Podcast, and that was my golden hour. Well executed on take number five. There it yes, is. Sir. <laughs> Thank Don't you. Worry, brother. Woof. Tell me when you want me to clip this. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Absolutely, man. It was great.